Welcome to episode 16 of China in Context. I'm Duncan Bartlett. China's reputation took a huge blow in the early days of the COVID outbreak. Officials in Wuhan, as well as others higher up in the Chinese government, were accused of conspiring to cover up the severity of the initial stages of the virus. Critics say that valuable time was wasted, costing many lives. Later, the Chinese government tried to enhance its international reputation by supplying masks and medical equipment to countries around the world. Now China's vaccine diplomacy is in full swing. Millions of people in China and other nations have already had Chinese jabs. But questions remain as to the efficacy of the Chinese vaccines, with scepticism especially high in the United States and the European Union. Well, I'm very pleased that we're joined on our podcast today by Stephen Chan, Professor of World Politics at SOAS. Welcome, Stephen. Very happy to be here with you today. Now, during the first wave of the coronavirus epidemic, China attempted to improve its image through sending masks and protective medical equipment to many countries. Some of my friends in the United States said they got emails from people that they hadn't heard of in many years from China, almost inundating them with offers of these Chinese products. Is vaccine diplomacy the next stage in China's process of recovering from that reputational blow? Well, it's certainly a stage in Chinese diplomacy. There's no doubt about that. But to be fair, everybody is playing this game of vaccine diplomacy. The Western powers, for instance, have offered the Pacific nations, the Asia-Pacific nations, a very great number of vaccines. They've offered none to Africa at all. So there the Chinese are filling a vacuum. And when you look at the need of the African continent, let's start with respirators, The United States gave all of five respirators to Zimbabwe. That meant the whole country had five respirators and no more. It was the Chinese who stepped in to fill the gap for a huge number of additional respirators, as well as, of course, the vaccine that the Chinese have developed, particularly the Sinopharm. And again, it was very difficult to get other forms of vaccine. So their diplomacy has filled a gap. And to be fair, as I said, their diplomacy has stepped in where our diplomacy has not stepped in. Well, let me ask you straight away what I think is probably the most important question on this topic. How do we know if the Chinese vaccines are safe to use? We don't know. We don't know particularly their efficacy rate. So far on anecdotal evidence, because we don't seem to have a huge number of people dying of blood clots, for instance, it seems safe. The big question is whether or not it's efficacious. And though the jury is out, in trials in Brazil, it was suggested that the efficacy was not much more than between 50 and 60%. So that's considerably down from the efficacy rate of Western vaccines. The first jab of AstraZeneca, for instance, should give you about 70% coverage. So 60% is down. Now, having said that again, what you've got is a percentage game in general. If you have even a slightly increased chance of not catching or certainly not dying of COVID, that plays for the well-being of a country, particularly if it's ravaged by COVID-19. If you look at what's happening in India right now, for instance, 
if they had a few million Sinopharm hanging around, they would not be having quite as much of a tremendous drama and crisis as they are now. Of course, the Indians have their own vaccine capacity, but they've not been able to roll that out in anything like the kinds of quantities that they need. But do you think that some countries are turning down the Chinese-made vaccines mainly for political reasons rather than because of safety concerns? Yes, I think politics plays a huge role here. So that in Southern Africa, for instance, uh, Sinopharm is about the only vaccine available. Whereas the Zambians next door, these are two adjacent countries, they've got long historical links. The Zambians are not touching Sinopharm. They're relying on the AstraZeneca being brought in by what was called the COVAX scheme that's marshaled by the World Health Organization and the African Union. This means, however, that they're getting far fewer vaccines than the Zimbabweans. But there's been a very conscious, and I think you're quite right, politically-based decision to go with the Western vaccines and not to go for the Chinese vaccine. So I've noticed that when it comes to the vaccines, China doesn't treat all its customers equally. Some countries have received vaccines in the form of donations. Other countries have purchased them. And some others were offered a loan of Chinese money to buy them. Can you explain the thinking here? Oh, yes, there's diplomacy at work here, and diplomacy comes at a cost, depending on where you stand in terms of the scales of diplomatic friendliness. But even countries that are very, very friendly to China, like Zimbabwe, for instance, they were given, as it were, a sweetener. A huge number of vaccines came free for nothing. Then the next shipment had to be paid for. Now, it was offered at discounted prices all the same. But let's say the Chinese are not likely to lose a huge amount of money in provision of vaccines. So yes, depending on how well regarded you are by the Chinese as an ally or not as an ally, you may get sweeteners. This may take the form of discounted prices. It may take the form of even a couple of million free doses at the outset, but it's not going to stay that way forever. I like your phrase, diplomacy comes at a price. Let's talk about another diplomatic issue. There are a small number of countries, mostly in the Caribbean and Central America, which recognise Taiwan diplomatically. Does that mean that they won't be offered Chinese vaccines? They certainly will not be offered Chinese vaccines. There's absolutely no way that the Chinese are going to make their vaccines available to them. And this is where vaccine diplomacy turns, strictly speaking, political. The Chinese have got a quarrel with Taiwan. They claim Taiwan as part of the historical mainland China. They see it as a breakaway province at this point in time. So they certainly wouldn't be rewarding diplomatic recognition of Taiwan. They would be punitive towards those countries that do recognize Taiwan, which means that those countries have got very little choice but to try to secure Indian or Western vaccines, it's unlikely that they're going to be particularly friendly towards Russia and they won't be able to get Sputnik vaccines. So they'll have to turn to the West or to India. But because these are very, very small countries, their political and their diplomatic importance is very, very low. So it may be that these become stranded countries in terms of access to diplomacy of the vaccine variety. Looking a little bit closer to China geographically, nine out of 10 of the ASEAN countries have taken Chinese vaccines, the exception being Vietnam, 
In fact, Vietnam's prime minister said he didn't want his country to be treated as a dustbin. Why did he say that? Well, let's say that there's been a long history of quarrel between Vietnam and China. Sometimes they're close and very often they're not so close. So this is to a certain extent standing up to the big bad boys in Beijing. Now, what alternatives Vietnam has, I don't know. I don't know what they want to do in terms of securing vaccines. They certainly don't have any capacity to develop their own. So it may be that what you're going to have is some kind of superpower game played out here. Maybe they've got some assurance from the Americans that American vaccines will be rolled out to them. Maybe the Johnson & Johnson, maybe the Moderna vaccines. It may be that the oversupply of AstraZeneca, which many countries are now reluctant to use at any kind of full scale, could be made available to countries like Vietnam. But this is very much the politics of the region and the politics of vaccine diplomacy. Now, we don't want yours. Uh, don't treat us as a dustbin. Now, that kind of very, very disparaging remark uh, was very, very much to draw attention to the fact that the Chinese have not released the results of their final stage of trials to demonstrate the safety and the efficacy of their vaccine beyond all clinical doubt. So can we talk about the situation within China itself? How's it getting on in terms of vaccinating its own citizens compared to other places? Basically, we don't know because getting detailed data out of the Chinese is like getting a pound of flesh off your grandmother. That's not going to happen. Again, by anecdotal evidence, they're doing a very good job of vaccinating their people. Now, this has to be seen in combination with their very rigorous draconian and dictatorial powers of being able to lock down entire cities. You don't have any chance to argue with this. If the lockdown edict comes, you stay at home. You have absolutely no choice about this. So coupled with the rollout of their vaccine and other measures like recurring lockdowns in various parts of the country, we seem to have a getting on top of the pandemic. But as I say, this is very, very much by a combination of factors, including very, very rigorous command and dictatorial tendencies to lock down if need be. So we have, I think, signs of progress that we can't actually measure because they're very, very parsimonious with data. We don't know whether or not they're going to apply the same kind of rigor and authoritarianism to making sure that there can't be future outbreaks of pandemics related to coronavirus and to COVID. I think that even though they deny it, there is some evidence indeed that it originated from the wet markets of uh, provinces that mixed the domestic animal trade with wild animal trade. Uh, that's this, strictly speaking a, a recipe for disaster. It's happened before, this time with very, very serious results. Whether or not they can control that, whether or not the central party can control the local parties, they forget a huge number of people make their living out of doing this kind of trade. They've raised themselves out of poverty by doing this kind of trade. And the Chinese are therefore caught uh, in a kind of a cleft stick because the Communist Party prospers by being able to guarantee continual upliftment from poverty. So what do you make of the Chinese narrative 
the one that you see in Chinese state media, that this is the people's war against the virus? Oh, everything's a people's war. There's no doubt about that. Uh, people want, however, to fight a war against the virus. No one wants this virus. Uh, their reaction to this pandemic is exactly the same as ours and uh, the reaction anywhere in the world. We'd like to get back to a normal life, please. And this means some freedom of movement, even if not freedom of speech, of course. But it really does mean that everyone will want to cooperate as much as possible with the steps needed for being able to get rid of the pandemic. You won't get too much vaccine skepticism in China. If you're ordered to come in for your jab, then you're going to come in for your jab. And I think people by and large are aware that it will probably do them some degree of good, even if not providing them with total efficacy against the disease. But if it can, like the AstraZeneca and the Pfizer, prevent you from dying of the disease, then that's a major plus, a major bonus in anybody's outlook. When it comes to sub-Saharan Africa, Chinese vaccines seem to be predominantly distributed through the COVAX initiative. What's your appraisal of COVAX? Well, in fact, the Chinese have other avenues of distribution as well. Uh, the problem with the COVAX uh, distribution is precisely a lack of logistical capacity. So the African Union just doesn't have the planes, for instance, and it certainly doesn't have the refrigerated planes and the kinds of numbers that it needs to get this vaccine delivered. Uh, that's why there was almost no delivery of early versions of Pfizer that required deep refrigeration. That just wasn't possible at all in Africa. No one had that kind of capacity in terms of cargo planes. And what you've got with COVAX, which is a scheme involving both the African Union and the World Health Organization, is an attempt to deliver mainly Western vaccines, some Chinese vaccines as well, but the Chinese, in order to circumvent the restrictions and the lack of logistical capacities of the African Union countries, have taken to simply delivering the vaccines direct on their own planes. So a very great deal of Chinese vaccine is getting through on Chinese planes rather than planes chartered by the African Union for the COVAX scheme. Looking at another region, the relationship between China and most EU countries has deteriorated during the pandemic. However, some Central and Eastern European countries, they have requested Chinese jabs. So, for example, in Serbia, they've been vaccinating their population with the Sinopharm vaccine. What does that say about China's influence in the region? It actually says very little. Obviously, the Chinese are very, very happy to be able to thumb their nose at Western Europe in particular, where, of course, you've got trade wars, you've got cyber wars, you've got sanctions wars right now, and largely of a symbolic nature, I hasten to add. But all the same, we're not actually having golden relationships at this moment in time. So for a European country to basically say we're open for your vaccines, that's a major propaganda boost for Beijing. Now, having said that, uh, the president of Serbia was very, very clear. He wasn't getting enough vaccines for Serbia. Basically, the decision of the Serbians was, we'll take whatever we can from whoever we can. So you have in Serbia a mix and a match of vaccine availability right now. I'm not sure what this means in terms of being able to ensure people get their second shot. Are they going to get the second shot of the first vaccine, the original vaccine that they took? 
it seems to be, let us say, driven in the first instance by some desperation. We're going to get our population vaccinated, come hell or high water. There may be a lot of difficulty around getting the second jabs up and running in a consistent fashion, consistent with the first jab. So the Serbian government would say they were wise in terms of looking after their population by all means possible. The Chinese will say, hooray, you know, we can say a European country wanted our stuff. Uh, but as I say, the Serbian government may well have a small price to pay at the end of this. Other countries in the Balkan areas, like uh, neighboring Croatia, uh, is relying entirely on Western vaccines. So I have family in uh, Croatia. Uh, they're all on AstraZeneca. And that's despite all of the bad publicity surrounding the possibility of blood clots with AstraZeneca, but they're happy to take AstraZeneca, partly because there's nothing else, unlike in Serbia, where there's everything else. So if you were in China now, and a doctor said to you that the only vaccine available for you against COVID-19 is a Chinese one, what would your response be? Oh, I'd take it. I mean, don't forget, I'm a very unusual person. Uh, my whole history is littered with war zones and zones of violence, et cetera, et cetera. I've been the guinea pig for every single kind of vaccine in God's creation. So this is not anything new to me. Any ounce of possible protection that I can get, uh, I'm the kind of person who's going to take it. Well, you sound like a very brave man. Thank you, Stephen. That was Professor Stephen Chan from SOAS. And you can find out more about our activities at the SOAS China Institute, including details about our courses and research on our website. That's soas.ac.uk. Alternatively, you could type SOAS China Institute into a search engine and it should pop up straight away. But until next time, that's all from us here on the China in Context podcast team.